Okay. Okay. Um, we're we're here on assignment from Pastor Terry, and it's uh, it's really my honor to serve with him, and and help him fulfill his mission here in the house. And he approached me and said, "I want you to speak two sermons, two messages on the role of the Holy Spirit." And so last week when I was here with you, I spoke about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. Uh, I really felt it was important as I was praying and meditating on this theme, I really felt it was important that we first put our focus on God himself and understand that God's activity is not dependent on our existence. God is God all by himself, and all by himself is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's activity didn't start in Genesis 1. And so I felt that we were supposed to work through that and activate our imaginations to think about, to contemplate on the very essence of God. But today we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. Somebody say amen. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit is active in the people of God. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. But before we do, I wonder if we could just bow our heads, bow our hearts, and let's just pray this morning, inviting the Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son as he taught us to pray. And we hallow your name. We say that you are great and greatly to be praised, that you are exalted above the heavens and above the earth. We thank you for your mercy and your loving kindness, which is new every morning. And the reason that we're here today is because you have chosen to smile upon us, and for that we are grateful. We thank you for your Son, whose love has been shed abroad in our hearts, but that love is in our hearts because of your Spirit. And so we ask you, Father, to send afresh and anew the wind of your Spirit into this house today. I present myself to you. God, you know I need you. You know that I can't do this right now without your help. And so I ask you to pour your spirit upon me, empower me, animate me, clarify my mind and my heart so that every seed you want to deposit into the soil of this place will be delivered by your grace and for your glory. We pray for Pastor Terry as he's ministering this morning in Philadelphia. Let your power be manifest in that house. Let the name of Jesus be made great as he presents himself to you this morning. We thank you for the body of Christ, for the privilege it is, for the joy it is to be a part of your family. And so we dedicate ourselves to you once again today. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Listen, this morning I want to talk to at least two groups of people as we get going at the outset here. First of all, if you are not an active follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a person that, now listen, you can be a Christian and not be an active follower of Jesus. Let me be very clear. You can believe the right things about God, but there's a difference between belief and behavior in that sense. There's a difference between a sort of assent or agreement with ideas about God and actively, faithfully, diligently walking with Jesus, participating responsively to the voice of Jesus and living basically with this question, where is Jesus? What is he up to? How can I get in on it? Not everybody who goes by the name Christian is living that way. And I want to say this to you this morning. My hope is that 
this sermon will pleasantly surprise you. Because I want to reveal to us, I want to share, to shine light on the fact that the Christian life is a deeply spiritual life. In other words, I think there's a presentation or an understanding in the culture today that Christianity, being a Christian, is about morality. In other words, being a Christian is about what's right and what's wrong. It's about the rules. It's about the good and the bad, the us and the them. I think there's a sense in which Christianity is also tied to politics. All of these things are very real. There's data to talk about this. Uh, there's a book called Unchristian where they polled unbelieving, unchurched people and asked them, when I say the word Christian, what is the thing that comes to mind? The number one thing that comes to mind is anti-homosexual. 90% of the people. We are known more for what we're against than what we're for. This is a problem. We're known more about our ethics. I'm not saying that ethics don't matter. But maybe you've heard a preacher use this phrase before. We major in the minor and we minor in the major. We take the peripheral things and we put them in the middle and it ends up displacing that which is in the middle. Now the reality is Jesus is the center and he can't be displaced. The only thing that shifts is our focus. Let me say that again. Jesus is at the center and he cannot be displaced. You can talk about the rules all you want. It's not going to move Jesus. You can talk about politics all you want. It's not going to move Jesus. He is a firm, fixed foundation, and he's not wavering. He's not changing. The gospel, the book of James says that there's no shadow of turning in him. What changes is us, is our focus, is our language, is our heart. And all I'm saying is ethics matter. Politics matter. Voting matters. All of these things matter. They're just not the most important thing. Practical things matter. What you do with your money matters. But it's not the most important thing. I'm saying there's something transcendent. There's something eternal. There's something Jesus talked about that doesn't rust. Moths can't eat it. Thieves can't take it. That's what I'm talking about this morning. In other words, if our best hope is getting better politicians who pass better laws, I'm out. Because that's not going to save us. That's not going to satisfy us. That's not going to liberate us. Guess what they can't legislate away? Sin. See, I'm also hoping today that if you're not a Christian or if you're a Christian who's not an active follower of Jesus, that somehow we can talk about the ways in which this transcendent faith, this deeply spiritual faith, is very much for our earthly good. Because this is the other problem we have in church. If the preacher's not talking about the rules, if the preacher's not talking about politics, he's talking about stuff that we can't figure out. What does this have to do with my life? Have you ever sat through one of those sermons? Not here. Not, I'm not, I know, never here. I'm not saying that. And certainly not me. I know I've never done that. But come on. It seems like we have two groups of preachers. The ones, pardon my pun, on the right are telling you how to live. 
and it's all about the rules, and it's all about the regulations, and I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't walk with those who do, and that's everybody over here. And then I got everybody on the other side, and when we all get to heaven, it's like, yeah, but I got to go to work this week. Have you met my husband? I got to live with him this week. I need some sort of intersection between heaven and earth. And isn't it interesting that the Jesus, Jesus we worship is the God who became man, the word who became flesh. The intersection of heaven and earth is in the person of Jesus. And we claim to follow him. Shouldn't our preaching reflect that? Does anybody want to explain to me how a virgin could conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to a man who is God? You want to explain that? Ambiguity. See, it seems like if we're preaching Jesus rightly, we should be scratching our heads. But was he a man? Did he bleed? Did he eat? Did he walk? Did he sleep? Did he sweat? Yes, yes, yes. Should our preaching be like Jesus? Yes, yes, yes. We believe that the life of the Spirit animates and informs human experience. These are not just ideas. These are ideas that infect your life. See, I have to believe that God's Spirit dwells in us. And because of that, I am capable of living a radically different life than I did without that spirit living in. What difference is there in my life because the spirit is here? Am I living a better version of my neighbor's lives or am I living an altogether different life, a life from God's future? Has anybody ever gone to the movies? Any sinners in the house, you gone to the movies? <laughs> anybody here like to see the previews? Yeah, come on. Some people like to see previews. I don't know about 30 minutes of them, but I like to see the previews. You realize that the life of the church is like a movie preview? People should see our lives and see something that's not here yet. And it's not the whole story. It's not the full experience. But when you experience the full experience, you'll remember the preview and go, oh yeah, that's what this was about. Did that get you? I hope that's sitting with you because that's the best I've got for you this morning. I don't do better analogies than that. Your life is like a movie preview. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet. Come on, Jesus, he got you scratching your head all the time because he said the kingdom of God is within you. But then he said the kingdom of God is at hand. But then he said when you pray, say thy kingdom come. But wait a minute, Jesus, I thought it was in me. Why am I asking for it to come? Scratch your head. If you're preaching Jesus right, you have a little bit of ambiguity. The kingdom of God is within you so that you and I and we can be a preview of the coming kingdom. When it gets here in its fullness, we should have been living animated by the Spirit in such a way that the world will stand up and say, we saw that already. We knew it was coming. The problem is when I'm just trying to use God to live a better version of my neighbor's life, there's not going to be any preview of something coming. It's just a tweak of what already is. 
I don't need the Holy Spirit for that. I just need ambition. I don't need the Spirit of God for that. I just need a competitive heart. I don't need the Spirit of God for that. I just need a little bit of discipline, and I can be better than somebody else. But it seems like the apostle warned about comparing yourselves by yourselves. We're not here to be better than one another. We're here to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If you're spirit-filled this morning, my concern is that this sermon will disappoint you. You see, sermons about the Holy Ghost often bring expectations. Like the preacher better go to Acts chapter 2. Talk about a mighty rushing, rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire. I always like that phrase, cloven tongues of fire. King James. We're going to talk about the baptism and fire. That's the expectation. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, interpretation, that's the expectation. But you guessed it, I'm not going there today. Sorry. If you came here this morning thinking that you're going to go out talking in tongues because I waved a hand at you, that's not the plan. Lord, if you want it, we'll do it, but that's not the plan. And again, it's because I believe that those are secondary issues. <gasps> Gasp. Secondary issues? Brother Mark, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, talking in tongues is not a secondary issue. Oh, but it is. There was a church in the city called Corinth that spoke in tongues profusely. They prophesied profusely. The Apostle Paul acknowledged the fact that they were excelling in spiritual gifts, the charismata in the Greek. He acknowledged it. He gave them a whole chapter, the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, a letter that he wrote to them. He gave them a whole chapter, and he said, there are many gifts or manifestations, but there's one spirit. And he began to enumerate the gifts of the Spirit, tongues and prophecy and so on and so forth, words of wisdom and knowledge. And he gets to the end of that chapter, and he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Okay. And then he says this at the end of chapter 12. He says, but I will show you still a more excellent way. If I have... If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was not written to make your wedding more beautiful. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was written to remind tongues talkers that speaking in tongues is not the most important thing. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians was not written so that you could have beautiful poetry. It was written so that everybody that was functioning in prophecy and words of knowledge would remember this is a secondary issue. If you're doing all this stuff, but you don't bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, I'm not interested in it. Sorry, was that too strong? Sometimes I get a little preachy and you're all like, Woo! But that is the essence of what Paul is saying. You've got to remember, 1 Corinthians 13 comes in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14. And he's saying to the people, listen, I know you flow in the manifestations of the Spirit, but 
at the center, if love is not anchoring all of it, it is worthless. You are a clanging gong and a crashing cymbal. And in case you're nervous, I'm going to quickly tell you my story. My testimony is that I am a fourth-generation Pentecostal. Data says don't use the word Pentecostal because people don't like that word. It is what it is. My great-grandparents were disinherited, kicked out of homes, etc., because they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition my whole life because my father was ordained in the Assemblies of God as a minister three months before I was born. As I got to my mid to late teens, I had an experience with the Lord where I had resolved that I was going to be committed to Jesus. I was going to be a solid, reliable church member. I would be honored, I'm 16, acting like I'm 67, I would be honored to serve on the board of the local church like my grandfathers had done before me. Wasn't really interested in the preacher thing. Let that be a warning, side note. I was content to be a good, moral, steady Christians, Christian and to believe all the right things. And then in December of 1990, God shook everything that could be shaken in my life. And a huge, spitting, sweating, loud Pentecostal evangelist from Texas got his big mitts on my face. And for an hour, what felt like electricity pulsed through my body. This quiet, introverted, shy Young man who wanted to be a lawyer was suddenly sobbing and weeping to the point that they, they held me up for 40 minutes so that I wouldn't be on the ground so that I would receive all that God had for me. It will be 33 years ago in December, and my life has never been the same. I feel like the Apostle Paul who told those Corinthian believers, I speak in tongues more than all of you put together. I'm not saying what I'm saying about tongues and gifts and prophecy because I don't think they're important. They absolutely are important. But if we make that the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the church, we will be no better than the Corinthians. The fact is, I had the gifts of the Spirit, but I didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. I went into my adult years, that moment in 1990, I was 18 years old. So yes, I'm 50. Do the math. There it is. I'm 50. I went into my adult years full of the gifts of the Spirit, full of electricity, full of the anointing. But I didn't have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And the fact is, the church culture, I'm going to say this plainly, the church culture is a culture that celebrates gifts, but not fruit. We give people microphones because they've got gifts and never bother to check if they had a lot of fruit. Gifts never fed anybody. And here's the reality. 
20 years on, I was miserable. My wife was miserable because of me. My friends were miserable. My kids suffered. Everybody suffered because I had anointing without character. I had gifts without fruit. And my relationship with the Holy Spirit was electric, but it wasn't sanctifying. And so I stand here as a man who has enjoyed the fullness of the power of the Spirit as expressed in charismatic giftings for sure. I have cast out devils. I have laid hands on people and had them receive and speak in other tongues. I have prophesied to people and spoken words of wisdom into their life. I have done the things. God has done the things through me is the more accurate way to say it. It's been an incredible experience. But those experiences didn't transform me. You see, transformation is not something that happens in these ecstatic experiences. Transformation is the slow, steady, daily work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your mind, unlearning all the bad carnal things that are there, showing you how to put to death what is earthly in you so that the Spirit can reign in you. And so before I, we get into the text, and I've gone too far, so we're going to do this really quick. I am going to ask them to put on the screen 12. This is not exhaustive, but this is 12 roles of the Spirit in the life of the church. And this is sort of the big picture. Guys, whenever you want to put that up, that would be great. He is, and, and there's, there are scriptures with this. You can take a picture of the screen. I'm going to spend 30 seconds here and leave it, okay? This is for you to have as a record. I would encourage you, crack open your Bible this week and look at these things where you can see how the Holy Spirit does all of these different things. And some of these are going to be in our sermon this morning. Some of these are going to be in our message this morning. But I want you to just have this for your personal reference. Like I said, it's not exhaustive. Uh, there are other people that will find other roles and other operations. Um, but this is a way where you can, number one, get to understand the Spirit better. But here's the thing about this list. Let it start to adjust your expectation. What this list says is what's possible in us. In other words, it's possible that you can experience new creation and renewal in your life because of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I already said the sinner's prayer. Honey, huh, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm ready to get saved again this morning. I'm going to come up for the altar call because I need, I need to get saved today. I just figured that out about an hour ago. I need salvation. I lost my salvation this week. I'm joking. I didn't lose my I, I, You understand what I'm saying? So all these things are here, um, and I, I just I want to give that to you, and you can have that, and I, I even believe we have... Uh, printed copies out in the lobby, too, if you want to do that, depending on your preference. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to two passages. One of them is 2 Peter chapter 1, and the other one is John chapter 16. So 2 Peter chapter 1 is right there towards the end where all the books are like stuck together one page at a time, and John 16. 
Second Peter 1 is one of the most powerful, sweeping, bold statements on what is true of you and what will be true of you that you'll find in the entire Bible. I say that with all the boldness. First, 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Why? For his divine power has. Everybody say has. Let me ask you. We're going to stop. Don't look. Look at me. English class, grammar class. Has is what tense is that verb? Past, present, or future? Past. It's past. He has given. Okay? So turn to the person next to you and say, he done did it already. Let's start over. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us everything. Somebody shout everything. Not some of the things, all the things. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Stop there for a second. Did you know this morning when you woke up that you have been granted everything for life and godliness? He done did it already. That doesn't even seem real. That seems like a lie. It doesn't seem possible. Whew. Keep reading. He's done this through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, past tense. He called us. Past. Verse 4. Through these, the glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that, stop here. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you see these two words, please mark them. They're incredibly important words. So that. Whenever you see so that in your Bible, those are purpose words. Those are words that reveal the intention of the preceding action. So the text is saying he granted us promises. He made promises to us. Why? Why does God make promises? So that. By them. Now here we're going to go back to English class. You may become past, present, or future. Future. What will you become? Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We're stopping to go back and look at that phrase. You may become partakers of the divine nature. This is the most scandalous verse in your Bible. There are others that will match it, but none will exceed it. God made promises to us because he wanted us to share in his divinity. 
Let me say for the record, you are a creature and you will always be a creature. You will never be God. But in the end, you will be united with God in the sense that you will become a partaker in his nature. It's unbelievable. He granted us promises. You might remember this. We're not going to turn there, but you might remember in Acts chapter 1, somewhere around verse 4 and 5, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, Go to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive the promise of the Father. Listen, God has made a lot of promises to his people. He's made some, does anybody here have, feel like God has made you, personally made you a promise? Would you wave a hand at me if you feel like God's ever made you a promise? Love it. God does that, okay? After all, Israel ended up moving into an area of the world that is called the promised land, right? But there is no promise greater that God has ever made to human beings than I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, your servants, I will pour out my spirit. No promise has been greater than the promise that said, I will put my spirit within No greater promise. And what I'm here to say is we cannot be partakers of the divine nature apart from the promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling the people of God. The chief role of the Holy Spirit among the people of God is to bring us increasingly into participation with and conformity with the very essence and nature of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Old church word, we say, sanctify you. Now, John 16, starting at verse 5, Jesus is speaking, and this is during the Last Supper. The Last Supper that began with foot washing in John 13. He has these long discourses. In John 16, 5, Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, grief has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am leaving. For if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Regarding sin because they do not believe me. And regarding righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you no longer are going to see me. And regarding judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at the present time. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. 
This is why I said that he takes from mine and will disclose to you. Wow. So there are three things here that I want to draw your attention to. Three things. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit convicts. Now you'll notice he says the Holy Spirit convicts the world. And he convicts regarding three things. Why does the Holy Spirit convict? The Holy Spirit convicts not to point a finger, but to expand the community. The Holy Spirit convicts, notice this, the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews. He's saying, I don't think you all understand. When I leave, the Spirit is coming. And when the Spirit's coming, the Spirit's going after everybody. You thought the Spirit was just dealing with the Jews. The Spirit's going to convict the world. When we read this text, we go, oh, worldliness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about sin. And we think it's about all the people having sex. And it's like, no, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying there are people that have been on the outside that I'm going to bring close because I'm sending the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. He convicts in order to expand the, holy, the, the community. Now, there was a, um, a Pentecostal preacher from New Orleans named Marvin Gorman, and if I preached this sermon and I didn't quote him, it would have been a travesty and I should have never been invited back. And here's what he used to say. He used to say in his thick New Orleans accent, he would say, you are not the Holy Spirit. That sounds so obvious and it sounds so silly, but I pray it infects you the way it's infected me for the last 20 years. Do you know how many times I've wanted to convict everybody around me of their sin? If you're married, there may come a moment in your marriage where you really want to be the Holy Spirit and you really want to convict your spouse of all the sin that is in their life. If you have a child, you'll really want to be the Holy Spirit and convict them of all the sin that's in their life. Maybe you'll get a job one day. And you'll work with people that have a lot of sin in their life. And you know what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to be the Holy Spirit. Can we all agree this morning that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world, not yours? Because when we convict... Our goal is often to point out how wrong people are, implying how right we are. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is always about transformation. It's always about change. It's about bringing life where there was death, health where there was sickness, light was where there was darkness. What else does the Holy Spirit convict about? Righteousness. Don't have the time to get into this, but the essence here is the righteousness of Jesus and the righteousness of God's people. In other words, like I remember what I said about the movie preview before? As the Holy Spirit indwells the people of God, we live our lives in such a way that people see Jesus. And people will be convinced that he is who he says he is, he's done what he said he's done, and he will do what he claims he will do. In other words, he's in the right. This is not about morality. This is not about being 
uh, ethically superior to your neighbor. This is about so expressing the life of Jesus in the world because the spirit of Jesus is in us that when people see us, they go, oh, he must have been who he said he was. Oh, you know what? He was God. Oh, you know what? He did get up out of the grave. Oh, you know what? He is coming again. What else? The Holy Spirit convicts regarding judgment. Now, this is even more obscure for a lot of people. We could have spent the whole sermon here, and I'm starting to think I should have because my time is almost up. What is the Holy Spirit convicting the world about judgment? Well, look at verse 11 of John 16. Jesus says, regarding judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is not about the judgment of the sinners. This is a judgment about the one who has held people oppressed by sin. This is about the judgment of Satan. This is about the judgment of evil. This is about the fact that the oppressor has been deposed and dethroned. That's what judgment is about. One of the early fathers of the church is a man named Origen. And notice what he said about this. Jesus came to free all those oppressed by the devil. And somebody said, amen. We're going to try that again one more time. You missed it. Jesus came to free all those oppressed by the devil. And he said of him with some befitting depth, now is the prince of this world judge. So the Holy Spirit convicts. Sin is not the final word. It's not what you were created for. Righteousness, Jesus is exactly who he said he was, and he'll do exactly what he said he would do. Judgment, the voice that's had power over this world, no longer has power over this world. You don't have to live in oppression. You don't have to live in fear. That's the role of the Holy Spirit regarding conviction. Does that sound like finger pointing to you? Does it sound like condemnation to you? No. Number two, the Holy Spirit guides. So number one, the Holy Spirit convicts. Number two, the Spirit guides. And this is the guiding into all truth. Verse 13. Please understand that guiding into truth is not a one-time affair. Remember I said earlier that the the experience of sanctification is gradual, it's steady, it's day by day by day as the Holy Spirit continues to shine the light of God on the things in us that need to be put to death. So here's another fun homework assignment. Read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this week. And read it with the Holy Spirit, conscious of the Holy Spirit, and say, can you Help me with this. This is what it looks like to be guided into all truth. Now, you've got to also remember something. When we read our Bibles, we read them in English, which means the word you could mean you, could mean Julie. It could also mean you, or as we say in the South, y'all. So, in the Greek, here's what we know. Jesus says... Verse 13, 
when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide y'all into truth. What does this mean? This means that the role of the Holy Spirit is a corporate role. Let me rephrase this. You can't get into truth all by yourself. The Holy Spirit's not going to take you there. If you think because you got a Bible, a study Bible, and a concordance that you're going to get into all truth, I have news for you. Your ego might be satisfied, but you're not going to get into all truth. The Holy Spirit leads the body of Christ into truth. So when we read our Bible, we want to say, how has the church been reading the Bible? Not what do I think it says. Oh, the Holy, the Holy Ghost showed me. Really? Okay. And here's what we need to know. The Holy Spirit guides us into the truth of the Father and the Son. So this is not just abstract information. This is personal information. Here's my story to help you realize what I'm talking about. Has anybody ever seen, you remember, those cookbooks that you'd have in the house that the, the cover, it was like a binder, and the cover was like a red and white checkered tablecloth? Like the Better Homes and Gardens, Good Housekeeping, whatever it is, right? Right? We got married. Somebody gave my wife that because everybody has to have that. If you're going to, you know, play house, you got to have the red and white checkered tablecloth cookbook. And early on in our marriage, my wife decided she was going to make meatloaf. And she got a recipe out of the red and white checkered t tablecloth book. Not yeah. And I sat down. Again, no fruit of the Spirit, just gifts. That was a joke. You'll get it later this afternoon. No joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no self-control. I sat down at the table, and I was like. <sighs> she was like, oh, you don't like the meatloaf? And I said, why don't you just get my mom's recipe? So if Pastor Terry wants me to come back and do a marriage seminar, I can do that. I can do that. But here's what I can tell you. There are recipes you can get on Google. There are recipes you can get on websites. There are recipes you can get out of the red and white tablecloth, checkered tablecloth cookbook, but they're not family recipes. There's all kinds of truth out there, but all truth is really God's truth. And on some level, what the Holy Spirit wants to connect you with is that relational truth. He wants to connect you to home cooking. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you to eat of the scroll and have it be like honey in your mouth. That's what the Holy, when I say the Holy Spirit leads you into all truth, I don't want you to think that the guidance of the Spirit is to make you smarter. It's to bring you into the life of God, into the story of God. And finally, I'll say this. The Spirit convicts, the Spirit guides, and the Spirit reveals. There are things we cannot know apart from the Spirit. And one of the reasons the Holy Spirit reveals is because he wants to prepare the community for what's ahead. Y'all have been on a journey here in this house for several months. 2023 has been a journey for y'all. 
And the Holy Spirit has been preparing you every step of the way. The Holy Spirit was preparing this over, over a year ago. Think about Pastor Terry transitioning to Pastor Ernest back in Philadelphia, apart from anything to do with this church in Burlington, New Jersey. What is God doing? God is freeing up Pastor Terry to be an apostle for this house. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's revealing something to Pastor Terry that doesn't necessarily, he doesn't, he's not giving him all the information. When Pastor Terry and Pastor Ernest are talking, and they, oh, you know what, we really feel like the Holy Spirit, we need to do this transition. They don't know all the details, but the Holy Spirit's preparing them and preparing you. The fact is, if anybody tells you that it's not challenging to follow Jesus, they're misleading. I shouldn't have closed my Bible. The last verse of John 16, the 33rd verse, Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation. You're going to follow him? There's going to be tough stuff. But take courage. I have overcome the world. That's revelation. Theologian Craig Keener, he says, as Jesus warned of the impending events of his passion in advance. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, I'm going to be crucified. Everything's going to go crazy. So the Spirit will continue to prepare Jesus' followers for testing in coming times or for their future inheritance. In other words, the men that are sitting at this Last Supper listening to Jesus talk, he's saying, I'm about to be abandoned by all of you. He said that earlier in the evening. Peter said, I'll never leave you. Jesus said, oh yeah? Listen for the rooster, brother. You're going to abandon me, right? I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be punched. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be dragged through the streets and crucified by Rome. I'm going to hang on that cross for six hours. So drained of life that they don't even have to break my legs to test and see. It's going to be so obvious that I'm dead. You're going to end up hiding for your life. The only way you're getting through this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reminding you of everything you heard at that dinner. Imagine you're James about to have your head cut off in Jerusalem. And as he sits in the pit of prison, he remembers Jesus saying, in the world you have tribulation but take courage I've overcome the world that's the role of the Holy Spirit he's looking at the end of his life cut off way too soon and he's remembering I have an inheritance I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also also said in this conversation. And James, about to be beheaded, suddenly goes, oh, okay. 
I can let go of this. I can surrender to this. I want to experience transformation in my life. Is there anybody here besides me that says, you know what, I could use some change. I could use some transformation. I could use some growth. I could use some maturity. I wish I was less carnal. I wish I was less ornery. I wish I was less fearful. I wish I was less angry. It's the role of the Holy Spirit. Does anybody here say, I would just like a revelation from God. I would like to hear God's voice. I would like God to come and do something supernatural in my life, to have this communion and this fellowship with God that's mystical, that's deep, that's spiritual, that's supernatural. We don't experience these transformations and these revelations apart from surrender. We don't experience these things until we just let go. We have to forsake the pride that deludes us somehow into thinking we're capable of running our own lives. We have to release the fear that somehow if God is in control, he's not going to do it the way we think it should be done. We have to abandon our projects of behavior management and sin management and finding a way to just sort of live by biblical principles. We've got to... No. We have to give up all of our efforts to control our futures and control the outcomes and say, God, it's yours. It was always yours. I'm just now seeing it. I'm just now letting it go. I'm just now saying, you know what? I'm not running my life. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Pray in tongues, yes. Prophesy, yes. Words of knowledge, yes. Miracles, yes. Healings, yes. But if I'm not surrendered, who cares? If I'm not loving, who cares? If I'm not walking in the conviction that Jesus is who he said he was, who cares? If I'm not free from the oppression of Satan, who cares? Let's bow our heads together. To Jesus I surrender all to Him I free.